And now for something completely different. Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal, the full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And welcome to the show this morning at 6.06 as we get this uh, well Monday edition of the show underway and get ready to wrap up last week of school. I don't uh, It's different for every school, right? But uh, at least for my kids, uh, they've got the last week of school this week. And somehow they only go half days. I'm not sure what's going on with schools. <laughs> they're, they're tapering. <laughs> they're tapering. <laughs> they're, they're at home and they're tapering. I don't understand. But, but uh, my kids were given the choice of next year being either online or face-to-face. And so they actually had the stupidity to come ask me if they should be online or face-to-face. <laughs> yeah, they're going face-to-face, let me tell you. So, 100%. 100%. You're getting out of the house. You're going back to school. So, yeah, that's happening for sure. <laughs> I think a lot of parents are this way, too. We're going to have two problems in uh, the next school year. Yeah. I figured this out. So uh, two, two big problems that are, that are coming up is that, A, we're going to have a lot of kids complaining about having to go back to school. Mm-hmm. Right. Which is, that's normal. Yeah. And we're going to have a sharp rise in people realizing they're alcoholics now. <laughs> so after having, after having their kids home for a year and you give up the day drinking, that's where, that's where it all shows They've up. They've all been homeschooled by alcoholics. I know, right. Well, it's, it's, it's like when I lived in Spain for probably about three years. And, you know, they drink. All the time. Like the, so in the morning, they have alcohol with their coffee. At lunch, they have a little wine or a little beer, right? Then uh, for dinner, they drink more wine. And so I actually asked somebody one time, I said, I said, what's your rate of alcoholism here in Spain? They go, we don't have alcoholics in Spain. I go, how do you know? Do you have like a not drinking day to check? I mean, <laughs> so. <laughs> I think the baseline is skewed. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> high tolerances. Yes. Speaking of high tolerances, Bitcoin has been one that you need a lot of high tolerance for here over the last couple of days. We're going to talk a little bit more about that this morning because Bitcoin now had a 50% drawdown from its recent peak in just a matter of a couple of weeks. So if you think about the crash in the markets back in 1999, uh, really 2000, and then of course 2007, those were 50% drawdowns in stocks that lasted, you know, basically almost a year. Uh, you know, from uh, trough to from peak to trough, and so here we have a cryptocurrency that actually dropped by almost fifty percent in just the course of just a couple of weeks. Very sharp decline here from the recent peak. This is great. This is Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, which is uh, just kind of a proxy ETF for for Bitcoin. But you know, very very sharp declines here. We're going to talk a little bit more about uh, cryptocurrency this morning and kind of what's been going on and and what it means. And of course, this is also part. Part of the problem, as we've discussed before, about potentially the acceptability of cryptocurrency in the future. You know, what's got to happen in order for this to be a legitimate currency at some point? What's got to happen with it to make it work? You know, and, and that's and, the, and like I said, we've got some charts and things about it this morning that we'll go through. But um, speaking about the markets, so we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks that, you know, we've had this kind of steady selling in the markets uh, really over the last month. And markets really have not gone anywhere. And again, this kind of this conversation we've had, we've been on this money flow sell signal that hasn't changed. And of course, the markets haven't gone anywhere. And that was something we wrote in our newsletter um, almost 
almost five weeks ago. We said, hey, when you get these sell signals, when money flows are positive, markets tend to consolidate. They don't, they don't they don't typically tend to decline much. And that's exactly what's kind of happened here. Just this, this just grind, which has been just really nauseating over the course of the last four or five weeks. Very frustrating for investors. You know, you have a, a day where you feel good, your portfolio's up, next day it's down. And it's just been a point of really just going nowhere. And what we've seen by that is really this kind of erosion of psychology in the markets uh, over the last few weeks. People are getting a lot more frustrated with what's happening in markets. And if you take a and I like reading the Reddit boards uh, on Wall Street Bets because, you know, about about back over here where we have this big run in markets, Kathy Wood was a hero. Now she's a villain. And this is just a function of all of a sudden this easy money in the market hasn't been so easy. And of course, a lot of that pressure has really been coming in a lot of the, of the NASDAQ and technology stocks in particular. That's had a bigger correction here, not nearly as much as what we saw with the uh, or not well, actually, a lot larger than what we saw with the S&P. S&P was a lot more stable, a uh, lot more drag in the in the uh, Nasdaq here over the last really last couple months. The market's really kind of just been grinding out the sideways consolidation, not really making a lot of moves. Now, the difference is is that we now have a money flow buy signal on the on the queues, and we have been seeing a little bit of upward bias towards the the Nasdaq stocks here over the course of the last few days. Today, markets are going to be up a bit here this morning, at least at the open. Dow's going to be about 122 uh, points at the open. The Nasdaq and the S&P also looking to open marginally higher, so we should see a little bit more push. And, and, and importantly, here the Nasdaq is trying to get above the 50 and the 20-day moving average. That would be a, a, a good move here today if that occurs, and, and importantly, closes above it. That would suggest the Nasdaq could make a move back here towards all-time highs. Don't really expect much more than that. This is going to be probably a fairly short-lived rally. And something that we've been discussing here for a while is that these rallies, these buying opportunities, tend not to last very long, unfortunately. When they tend to occur, we tend to get them, they last two to three weeks. And here, we've just had this rally over three days in the NASDAQ, not much of one, and we've already eaten up about a third of the signal. So again, these things are going to move fairly quickly here. So again, the upside potential here is not great, but again, there is a potential here for markets to, to rise higher and let you have an opportunity to kind of rebalance risk in portfolios, which is what will be the best opportunity here, particularly before we get to June and July, where I still think that you were kind of setting up for a little bit bigger correction uh, in the markets a little bit later on the summer, because if we take a watch at what's happening here with our weekly indicators, they're starting to turn lower, especially if we take a look at the S&P. As an example here, that weekly sell signal is getting much closer to triggering. We're not there yet. That's why I'm saying we've got a you know a few days here of where we can get a market rally back up towards all-time highs. Very possible, um, but then we're going to get set up for uh, a bigger correction probably sometime in June, maybe even early July, and that would be five to ten percent again. A 5% correction well within norms. In fact, we've just had one of the longest stretches. The last time we had a 5% correction was back over here in this little blip um, in August and September of last year. That's one of the longest stretches that we've been in the markets without a 5% correction. So again, having one here this summer, certainly well within the context of normality and would be an opportunity to put some money to work. But as, as we continue to get there and we get closer, we'll continue to, to kind of keep you updated on this as well. But uh, again, 
and kind of coming back and taking a look at the things that do matter outside of this, of course, is continuing to watch things like the dollar because the dollar is continuing to really kind of weaken here. But we're starting to see a pickup. We're starting to build a nice base along these recent lows here for the dollar. And again, as we begin to see a change in the economic environment, if we begin to see uh, a, a, a contraction or a peak of that economic growth rate, we should start to see a pickup here in the dollar. The dollar is getting very oversold here. So again, a counter trend rally in the dollar would not be surprising. Keep a watch on rates. We talked about previously that interest rates as a function, and uh, tell you what, let's look at actual rate itself. Um, interest rates have peaked here um, after a very sharp rise earlier this year and expectations of super strong economic growth this kind of economic resurgence from the reopening lots of inflation despite the, the all this talk that we've got this massive inflation coming down the pipeline really not seeing that show up in rates rates are still predicting weaker economic growth later this year and actually we're about to trigger a signal here suggesting that rates are about to go lower and that was one of the reasons that we recently just added a little bit of exposure uh increased our duration and longer and, and bonds because there's a potential here that we're about to get a move in rates bringing rates down bottom prices up and also help hedge off in portfolios and that would align a lot here over the next few weeks with that bigger correction sometime mid-summer so kind of some things we're looking at we'll be back after the break talk a little bit more about crypto i'm your host lance roberts be right back you're listening to the real investment show you could be one of the seven in ten people requiring long-term care in your lifetime are you prepared for nursing home care costs averaging more than seventy six hundred dollars a month our next virtual lunch and learn will cover the management of long-term care expenses that could make or break your retirement join richard rosso and danny ratliff for the basics of long-term care long-term care register at realinvestmentadvice.com for our virtual lunch and learn on long-term care June 24th at noon. Realinvestmentadvice.com. The Real Investment Show. Six seventeen as we kind of get uh, things underway. Of course, uh, if you did get a chance this weekend, um, we had a uh, had a lot of fun with. Uh, I hung out with uh, Richard Brasso and Danny Ratliff this weekend, and we did about an hour long podcast talking about kind of our market outlook. We talked a lot about uh, valuations and what we expected from markets for the rest of this year. So yeah, a lot of fun, uh, good conversation. Uh, Brent Clanton will have that uh, posted up on our website um, sometime this week, right? Yes. Yeah. Some, sometime this week. <laughs> maybe. Can we hold it down? Maybe a couple of days by Wednesday, maybe? When do maybe. You think? Maybe. maybe. <laughs> You're not committing, are you? <laughs> I haven't even seen it yet. I got you. <laughs> <laughs> so, but we will have that up this week. So, if you do uh, get by our website, uh, realinvestmentadvice.com, just simply click on the YouTube link and subscribe there. And uh, when we do get it posted, you'll get it notified. But again, uh, we spend a, a, a lot of time on uh, Saturday really kind of going through markets and outlooks and, you know, kind of thing and had just generally good discussions, good questions. Um, talked a lot about uh, U.S. dollar and the importance of the reserve currency and why having a reserve currency is so important. 
And, you know, that really kind of, you know, re revolves around a lot of things that are going on in our economy right now. And the things that we're doing in government continue to undermine the very thing that we're trying to protect, which is a strong, sound dollar. Right. And, you know, this is and this is problematic longer term. You know, it sounds great that we're going to do all of these debts and deficits and those type of things. Um, but there's consequences for these actions that are slow to mature. And, and, you know, a lot of the things that we're doing have been occurring over the last 30 and 40 years. You know, when you talk about the wealth gap and you talk about, you know, the, 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 you know, the problems in society, these things haven't showed. These things just didn't show up because we elected some guy president. Right. These things have been brewing for a, a, three decades now. Slower rates of economic growth, wider dispersion of, of wealth disparity, um, you know, living standards being shifted, the shrinking of the middle class. This didn't happen just because we elected some guy president, right? You know, what you're seeing over the course of the last, you know, eight, 10 years in particular, really over the last three administrations, has been a culmination of, you know, the two previous decades of eroding the and, and really kind of the hollowing out of the middle class. And that's now led to this angst that's led to these problems that everybody's now upset about. But this has been happening for a long time. And so now we're opting for things like socialistic policies because we think that's a fix. Right. But this is how things go in society. But a couple of things here before we get uh, into the dollar a bit. I did want to show you a couple of you know, graphics this morning to just talking about where we are market wise as well, because it all kind of plays in together. If you take a look at real earnings yield. Now, this is the kind of the inverse of the price earnings ratio. Right. So this is earnings divided by price. So how much do companies earn divided by the price of the stock? And then you subtract out inflation from that. Right. So we've got to adjust it for inflated dollars. And we're now at levels that have historically coincided with major market peaks, 1987, 1999, 2007, today. Now, it just goes to this is just part and parcel of this conversation about the things that we're doing society-wise, um, market-wise, et cetera. A lot of the, the boost that we have in the financial markets, the reason that price is so skewed relative to earnings is because of all this artificial interventions that we've been doing. Um, take a look at equity issuance. One of the things that we've done over the course of the last really couple of years in particular has been this rush to get stocks into markets. Why? Because, well, since the Fed's pushing, you know, liquefying the markets and we've got retail investors, you know, piling into the markets and we're giving retail investors a bunch of cash to go invest. So they're all going to run to the market, throw it in the markets. This is a great time for Wall Street to maximize that benefit and issue stock. That's how they make money, investment banking, right? So we've had the most egregious levels of equity issuance since when? Since 1999, right? And this is just all part and parcel of these, of these functions. Now, this brings us around to crypto, right? Because one of the things that has been a byproduct of all this kind of speculative fervor has been what's been going on with Bitcoin and you know, we, we've talked here recently about cryptocurrencies and and when I say Bitcoin, I'm just using it as the ubiquitous 
you know, kind of term for, for crypto. I'm, I'm kind of really talking about all of them, right? Um, whether it's Dogecoin or Doggycoin, however you want to pronounce it, or whether it's Ethereum or whether it's Bitcoin, right? It's, it's, they're kind of all in the same basket right now. But a couple of things that we talked about this weekend in the newsletter, uh, sorry, oh, sorry, in the, uh, the conversation I had with Richard and Danny was, you know, these swings in crypto undermine their ability to be a currency at this point. You know, if you take a look at week, uh, you know, just what happened last week, I mean, crypto's down 40% in a week. Now, think about this for a moment. Everybody's upset at Elon Musk for stopping accepting Bitcoin to buy Teslas with. You can't blame him. It was a stupid idea to start with. (laughs) But um, what's going on with crypto is that when you lose 40% of your value in a week, you can't accept crypto as a currency or a means of payment for a manufactured good. So, for example, Elon Musk, he produces a Tesla, right? So it's at the plant in, say, California. So he sells the car to the dealership on Monday. He's got to put the car onto a transport, drive it across the country to, say, a dealership in Florida as an example. So in that one week of drive time or three days or however long it takes to get it from California to Florida, he's received payment for the car and then the value of the car has now dropped by 40%. So, you know, the, the problem is that for him, he can't afford that kind of volatility in selling vehicles because by the time that he produces a car at x cost and if the value of the relative currency falls by 40 percent he loses money and the only way he makes money now is on ev credits anyway so you know you really can't afford to take any more losses at this point but this uh, and now look i'm not i'm not picking on tesla i'm just saying he was accepting bitcoin that's why i was using him as an example but you know this is one of the problems for any business to accept cryptocurrency as a as a means of being a currency. You know, the one thing the the value of the dollar is and there's a there's a, a lot of myths about the value of the dollar that you know that we have to sort out. And we won't we won't get into all those today, but the basic premise is that a dollar today will relatively buy you a dollar's worth of goods tomorrow. Yes, we have to worry about inflation. But, you know, if you go down to the store today to buy a loaf of bread, it's going to cost you $50. <laughs> Next week, that same loaf of bread will still cost you about the same amount of money. A year from now, inflation has crept in and, and maybe costs have gone up a bit, right? But, but generally speaking, you don't have 30 and 40% swings in the value of your of the goods and services that you can purchase with a dollar, right? So stability of a currency is extremely important, especially when you have a lot of international shipments of goods. 40% of corporate profits come from the exports of goods and services from the U.S. So it's very difficult to have pay- a payment system that's swinging 30 or 40% in a week, one, one direction or the other, um, as a method of payment because businesses can't plan around that. 
And remember, a lot of what businesses have to do is they have to plan for revenues and income and all these type of things. And so if I'm doing projections out for my business and every every business person does this is, you know, sits down and say, okay, here's my revenue now. Here's my revenue, what I expect in a quarter. This is what I think my income will be. And this, we can afford to go hire somebody or we can't afford to go hire somebody or we can go afford to buy a new piece of property plan or equipment, whatever it is. But if I've got my income is swinging by 30 and 40, the value of my income, I should say, is swinging by 30 or 40% in a week, I can't plan. So this becomes problematic ultimately down the road. And this is, a you know, and, and like the recent drawdown here um, is interesting because you've now had a major bear market in crypto. Crypto's down 50% from the peak. That is a bear market by any definition. So this is kind of a defining moment now for crypto in general. Either all the hodlers are going to bail and not come back, or this will start a recovery process back to some other level, right? And whether it gets back to new highs is something we'll have to wait and see. But you know, if you go back and look at the stock market 19, in 2000 to 2003, the market declined by 50%. It took roughly, you know, about six years, five years to get back to where it was in 2000. In 2008, we lost 50% again. It took another five, six years to get back to even. And now after that, we've made, you know, all-time highs. So this is the defining moment for crypto. If crypto is going to be a longer-term investment, there's a lot of crypto bulls out there. There's a lot of people that believe that cryptocurrency is going to be the next, you know, thing. A couple of things have to happen. First of all, the volatility has got to slow way down. The second thing is, is that this has got to recover from the peak and, and, and has got from, the, from this drawdown, this bear market, and has to get back into a sta more stable trend if it's going to become an adopted way of, and means of payment going forward. Right now, it's a great speculative asset. The question is, is can it become a useful utility? And for that, the volatility has got to slow down. Be right back after the break. Investment Show. You could be one of the 7 in 10 people requiring long-term care in your lifetime. Are you prepared for nursing home care costs averaging more than $7,600 a month? Our next virtual lunch and learn will cover the management of long-term care expenses that could make or break your retirement. Join Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff for the basics of long-term care. Long-term care. Register at realinvestmentadvice.com for our virtual lunch and learn on long-term care. June 24th at noon. Real realinvestmentadvice.com. You're listening to The Real Investment Show. Carry on my wayward son. There'll be peace when you are done. Lay your weary head to rest. Don't you cry no more. Yeah. And welcome back to the show this morning. I'm your host, Lance Roberts. You know, if young people would just listen to our podcast, we could save them 
a lot of angst. And maybe a lot of money. And some money. But, you know, we're boomers, so yeah, they don't uh, listen to us. Okay, right? boomer. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, we tried to warn them about things like Dogecoin, which has <laughs> now gotten cremated because they were like, oh, if you're in Bitcoin, that's boomer coin, right? Well, <laughs> maybe you should go where the boomers are because they're going to save you some money. Why? Because of experience. One of the things that we talked about from time to time on the show is, is that buying houses are not an investment. The National Association of Home Builders, the, the, the National Association of Realtors, they do a great job of promoting the value of home ownership. And they, you know, they team up with the financial media and they, they get them to put out these stories about how investing in a house is, a, is part of your investment structure. And you should, you should buy a home because it's part of your kind of your asset value. And look, there, there is a truth to that, that, you know, a house is an asset, right, on your balance sheet. And there's also a liability attached to it called the mortgage. But as we've talked about, what you always hear, and this is, this is what's called the anchoring effect, People always hear the stories about, oh, I bought this house for $100,000. I sold it for $150,000. You know, I held it for like 10 years. Sold it for $150,000. I made all this, I made crazy money owning this house. No, you didn't. Because we always forget to back out all the other crap we got to play with owning a house. You know, property taxes, school taxes, maintenance, upkeep, you know, all, you know, (laughs) just all that stuff. And what any homeowner will tell you is that it's expensive to own a home. Oh, I forgot HOA fees. Yeah. Got to get, get those criminals in there. Should be a law against HOAs. But because I'm not sure they actually do what they're supposed to do. And they just collect a crap load of money. So anyway. It's interesting because, you know, we, we've warned people, look, look, should you, so let's back the story up real quick. Should you buy a house? Yes. When? When you can afford it. Well, when can you afford it? When you have all your other stuff paid for and you're not up to your eyeballs and student loan debt and automobile debt and this debt and credit card debt out the wazoo, you buy a house when you can afford it. When the monthly payment is not impacting your overall lifestyle. And you can afford to still make your savings goals every month. And that's the important key. You buy a house, so you should be saving about 30% of your income every month. So you get a paycheck, 30% of it should go away to your savings accounts, investments, whatever, right? If you can afford a house payment after your 30% savings, then you can afford a house. If you can't, you can't. Because when you buy that house, now you got to pay for all the other stuff that goes along with it. And this is what millennials are finding out. Survey out over the uh, over the weekend. Of course, you know, a lot of millennials ran out and they bought houses after the pandemic shutdown. It's like, oh my gosh, I live in an apartment. Now we're shut down. I got to be locked up. I can't be locked up in this apartment. I'm going to buy a house. And of course, we've had this massive rush up in houses and prices. And so people are scrambling to buy a house and they're overpaying for the houses by large amounts of money just to try to get into a house. In fact, they're buying them sight unseen. <laughs> One recent survey found that millennials who decided to take advantage, I'm reading this by the way, um, of low mortgage rates and buy a home during the COVID pandemic have mostly come to regret 
their decision. A survey from Bankrate pointed out buyers' regrets are even more of a factor in the pandemic as agents compete with even more ruth- even more ruthlessly to complete deals, leave it to the millennial generation to normalize buying a home sight unseen and waiving contingencies that might have allowed them to escape problems when they emerged. Now, a, a, a boomer <laughs> would tell you to never waive contingencies on buying a piece of real estate, much less buying one site unseen. But, you know, we're just boomers. We haven't done this before. Yeah, what, 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 you know, we just have experience, right? What do we know? We've done all, this is what I tell my kids all the time too, right? My kids go do stuff. I was like, I've done that. Let me tell you how it's going to come out. And then when it comes out the way I told them it was going to come out, they're like, don't talk to me for like a month, right? (laughs) Because they don't want to hear I told you so. An interest, uh, also of interest, the survey found that generally speaking, older buyers had fewer complaints about their purchases. Perhaps that's reflect the fact that older people have a better idea of what they want and need. In total, 64% of millennial home buyers aged 25 to 40 have regrets about the purchase compared to just 33% of baby boomers ages 55, 57 to 75. By far, this is the, the point you should know. By far, the biggest regret among homeowners wasn't being unprepared. Uh, sorry, wasn't. Sorry, let me repeat that. I'll spit that out. By far, the biggest regret among recent home buyers was being unprepared for the cost of maintenance. More than 20% of millennial homeowners said they felt the cost of home ownership were just too high. And that number jumped to 26% among those between the ages of 25 and 31. Um, yeah, again. You start getting all the additional taxes and fees and everything else, and all of a sudden you're going, hey, I don't have kids. Why am I paying school taxes? Yeah, everybody pays them. (laughs) This is why we need school choice, so your tax dollars can follow you around. That's a different story for a different day. Um, But this is, you know, this goes back to that very basic idea of understanding the basics of finance and what you're getting into. And, And again, owning a home is fine. Right. But people tout this as this idea that it's an asset. It's not an asset. And I'll tell you why it's not an asset. It's an expense. But yes, I buy a home today and it goes up in value. That's great. I sell that home. Where am I going to live? I'm going to move back into an apartment. I'm going to move into a trailer. What am I going to do? I'm generally going to sell that house and buy another house. And that house is inflated in value as well. So basically, I'm just rolling value over from one house to the next house because I have a place to live. I don't get to really extract that value to live on. It doesn't get to wind up in my bank account until after I die and my house is sold to my estate. Then it winds up in the family account for all the kids to have, right? Um, so... The, the growth of that asset really isn't a huge benefit for building retirement assets. It's not something you can live on down the road. It's not going to generate an income stream. Now, I'm not talking about rental properties. That's a different, that's, that's an asset, right? Rental properties are an investment and they are an asset because I have value, I have leverage, and I get an income stream from it as long as it's rented, right? So that's, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about home ownership. So keep these straight. But, you know, we have because of the marketing 
Americans have been told is like, oh, that's the American dream. No, that's not the American dream. The American dream is not home ownership. Okay, Lance, what is the American dream? The American dream is going out. You know, people didn't come across the seas, right, <laughs> to America to buy a house. That's not why they came here. They came here for opportunity to build something, right? They, they came here to start farms and ranches and, 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 and build wealth, right? Build prosperity. Buy a piece of land, right? Get a piece of land. But then use that to create wealth and prosperity, which is what a lot of people do. You hear stories all the time about people that came from India or Asia or wherever they came here with $5 in their pocket, and now they own a multi-million dollar company, right? Because they invested and they worked hard and they grew a business. That's the American dream. The American dream is about allowing capitalism to work and allowing people to create something that creates wealth. What is the symbol of the American dream? That's home ownership. I've created wealth, and from that wealth, I was able to buy property, my home. But see, we allow all the marketing in the, in the world to come around and say, oh, you, you know, if you rent, you're a poor person. You've got to go buy a house. No, if I rent, I just pay rent. I don't have taxes and you and 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 homeowners fees and maintenance and upkeep. My my sink breaks. I call the the landlord and say, hey, come fix my sink. Right? I've got a fixed cost to rent. Nothing wrong with renting. It's the best way to go to get started in life. Start building, getting rid of your debt. Start building up savings. Start building your investments. And when you can continue to save thirty percent of your income, it's like, why is this saving too much money? If you save 30% of your income, you will never worry about money. Ever. Because you're forced to live within a budget. In order to save 30% of your income, you've got to live in a fairly strict budget. And when you do that, you never worry about money. You can't have a bunch of credit card debt and save 30% of your income. Can't do it. But this is the problem. We have distorted our standard of living in the U.S. to where in order to buy a home, these millennials are buying homes with like 3% down. We're making it worse for them by giving them easy, low-cost terms. Back in the day when Brent and I first bought houses, right, you had to have 20% down, perfect credit. There was no double mortgages. You had one mortgage and you had 20% down to qualify, but you had skin in the game. And to get to 20% down, you had to be able to save money, which means that you were financially responsible enough to save the down payment to own the house to start with. So, you know, while millennials and, and Gen Zers and people complain about the state of affairs of the economy and how capitalism sucks, a lot of this has to do with your own bad financial habits. Maybe we should start there. Be right back after the break. If I leave tomorrow Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. You could be one of the 7 in 10 people requiring long-term care in your lifetime. Are you prepared for nursing home care costs averaging more than $7,600 a month? Our next virtual lunch and learn will cover the management of long-term care expenses that could make or break your retirement. Join Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff for the basics of long-term care. Long-term care. Register at realinvestmentadvice.com. 
investmentadvice.com for our virtual lunch and learn on long-term care. June 24th at noon, realinvestmentadvice.com. The Real Investment Show. the show this morning i'm rose lance roberts brent clinton as well of course uh you know it's we've, we've talked about how truth is stranger than fiction a lot of times mm-hmm. and you know that you watch movies and then later on they become reality type yes. thing right i mean it's like how did that happen it's kind of scary it is kind of scary um but you know part of this you have to wonder because you know did you know that the cia and the government actually and the, and the military as well they're actually involved in movie productions. They actually contribute money to make certain movies to deliver certain messages. The uh, military does it to help recruit recruiting efforts, right, to get people in the military. The problem with that is, is that 63% of the people that want to try to join the military can't because they're either <laughs> obese, they have a criminal record, or they don't have a high school diploma. So, I mean, it's a terrible situation for the military right now trying to recruit people in America. So that's, that's a whole other issue. Um, but... You know, it's interesting because, you know, we have all these science fiction movies, right? So we had Star Trek, you know, about exploring the, you know, the outer worlds. And then we had Independence Day where aliens came and tried to conquer the planet. We've seen tons of these movies where aliens come to destroy the planet. Marvel movies, right? So even the latest Marvel movies, Thanos comes, you know, wipes out half the population. It's interesting because things kind of keep getting weirder because <laughs> I don't know what they were trying to tell us here lately, but all I'm saying is is that the Senate is now expecting a report um, that is coming out in the next uh, month or so on the existence of UFOs. Um, <laughs> the Pentagon thinks UFOs, UFOs may exist after all, and the evidence is growing. This is now trending on Twitter. And by the way, you may also have to look it up under UAP, which are Unidentified Aerial Phenomena. That's the other word for UFOs. So remember the whole thing about Area 51 doesn't really exist, all su- super secret. That's where the aliens are. They've been telling you for years. <laughs> That this may exist, but apparently uh, UFOs are kind of hanging out there around the, you know, kind of hanging around out there in the universe. Not sure exactly why, but, uh, you know, it's really not surprising. But all this stuff for years, which has been, you know, said, oh, UFOs don't exist. It's all conspiracy theory. There's a bunch of people with tinfoil running around going, yes, yeah, I told you. That's <laughs> <laughs> all I'm saying. <laughs> Would not surprise me if it's all orchestrated. What, the UFOs? Yeah. Just saying. All orchestrated how? Like, they don't really exist? By the military-industrial complex. Okay. So that, basically, they've just been hiding the fact that you have... Yes. Of course they have. Yes. Of course they have. Call me a cynic. Call me crazy. (laughs) Call you conspiracy theorists. That's what it is. My hat is made of titanium, not Uh, tin. Exactly. Joe Biden was recently asked about the question. President Obama says this was a question from a reporter. President Obama says there is footage and records of objects in the skies. He's identified uh, these unidentified aerial phenomena. And he says, we don't know exactly what they are. What do you think it is? This was a reporter asking Joe Biden. Joe Biden says, well, there's hair on my legs. And uh, I'm sorry. (laughs) 
just teasing. Um, he says, I would ask him about that and kind of hustled off the stage after that. So, um, you know, he, he didn't want to take it. But what is interesting here is, is that now there's a UF, there's actually a 60 minute special coming out on all this. So it'll be worth watching. But again, now all this, all the, and of course, the Navy has been releasing, uh, you know, clips and things about UFOs as of late. So, you know, that's, you know, kind of becoming more mainstream. So they're kind of easing into this. So either, you know, we're about to be taken over by aliens or something else is going on. So we'll see, though. But it should be interesting to see this report when it comes out on the existence of UFOs and aliens and <laughs> don't know where this is going to. <laughs> because, you know, you kind of map all this stuff together, right? We've got shortages on everything, right? There are shortages on everything that you can imagine right now. You know, the U.S. government's paying farmers to destroy crops and we got food shortages running. You got semiconductor shortages and shortages are going to get worse, right? I mean, somehow we magically keep getting backups in... You know, like the Suez Canal, some ship randomly just hijacks itself right in the middle of the uh, the Suez Canal and blocks store, you know, blocks shipping right in the middle of the shortage. And then uh, there was the Mississippi River instance where the bridge had a crack in it. We had to block shipping for a few days. So we keep having all these events that keep stacking up more and more of these shortages that we've got. But we've got shortages on everything, right? There's shortage on cars, semiconductors, food, you know, you name it. There's a shortage on it right now. Prices are going through the roof because there's a shortage. Can't make deliveries. Um, you know, the bottlenecks caused by the shutdowns, we can't quite get those uh, back on track at this point. Shipping costs soaring through the roof right now. You want to try to you want to try to book a shipping container? Forget it. Can't do it. And people are paying three and four times rates to get a shipping container put together. So, you know, when you take a look at what's going on, you got this again. You know, just a tremendous amount of impacts all occurring at once. You got the, the the economic shutdown, then you've got droughts, you've got floods that we've had. Um, you know, we've had you know fires, you name it. And this has all led to a a uh, with the freeze in Texas. <laughs> you know, just you name. It, we've just had a a tremendous amount of events that have now really backed up these shipping supplies, productions of, of goods and services that have led to the shortages. And, and these aren't going to get resolved anytime soon, you know, uh, to, to, to fix the semiconductor supply chain problem alone is a multi-year issue. You've got to build a plant. You've got to grow the silicon. I mean, you've got, I mean, it, you can't, it's, it's not something that you can just throw up a plant, start fabbing chips tomorrow. You just can't do it. So, you know, this is going to cause a lot of change in behaviors about what people are buying, where they're buying it, um, what the costs are, um, ultimately. I mean, you know, inflation is going to be here for a while. Now, is it permanent? That's a different story. Inflation is supply and demand driven. So, but we have all the components in place, you know, with shortages on just about everything to have a very sharp spike in prices in the near term. And, and while people talk about the impact of sharply higher prices back in the 70s, they go, wow, this is, this is going to be like the 70s. You might want to remember that in the 70s, when you had that sharp spike in inflationary pressures, you had double back-to-back -back recessions in the 1974 bear market. So inflation isn't a great thing to have, especially spiking rates of inflation, because the economy can't deal with it. 
So, and we've got certainly have all the components for very sharp spikes in inflation. Again, we, we saw that last month in the CPI report. We're going to see it again this month. And, and really the question is going to be just how long is it before we can get these supply chains, you know, kind of back on track and start getting the, the, the flow of products, goods and services back in place. And now, now that will happen. And then we're going to have a big deflationary push as well. So we have this sharp spike in inflationary pressures that will give way to a very sharp decline or should say a sharp increase in deflationary pressures. Because at some point, all that so everybody's going to start producing, right? Because they got to produce. There's all this demand right now. And you're going to build up a bunch of supply. And then that supply will begin to outstrip demand. And then you're going to have this huge amount of oversupply that'll lead to a big deflation of prices. And that's why if you go back and look at the 70s, exactly what happened. Once the oil embargo was over, inflation fell sharply. And that was the mistake that Paul Volcker made by hiking interest rates, trying to break the back of inflation. Um, he should have left it alone, let interest rates absorb naturally, which would have occurred. Interest rates on the 10-year Treasury were going up with the rate of inflation, but the Federal, the Federal Reserve Bank should have stayed out of manipulating interest rates, and they should have remained out of it for the next 40 years and allowed interest rates to solve their own economic problems, because they will. But... By, by hiking rates and by becoming an interventionist into the markets, they created a lot of other problems outside of just the inflationary issue. And this is, unfortunately, what we're going to probably see again. The, the Federal Reserve will start hiking rates at the wrong time. They'll start tapering their balance sheet at the wrong time. And that's going to lead to a bigger contraction in economic, price, economic growth as well as prices. And so a lot of what we see in the short term is going to be very transient because ultimately what the Fed will do is they will break the back of these inflationary pressures by causing the next recession. Now, when is that going to occur? That next month? Three months from now? Six months from now? Next year? Year after? Who knows? It's, but when they start hiking rates and tar start tapering their quantitative purchase, you can almost slap a clock on it, say, 9 to 12 months. So that's the thing you're going to be watching for. Okay. Uh, a couple other things just to kind of wrap up the show this morning. Uh, futures are up this morning. Uh, Bitcoin recovering up a bit, 13% this morning. So kind of bouncing off that low. And again, this is what we were talking about earlier, volatility. Uh, you got to like it. Um, Dow is up going to be 105. S&P is going to be up about 19 at the open. So again, a little bit of an update today, a little bit of push higher. We are going to trigger the buy signal on the S&P now as well. So now we're going to have buy signals in both the S&P and the NASDAQ that should help lift prices at least back towards all-time highs. That's not that far away, right? We didn't have any real corrections. So we're talking about one, two, three percent here, maybe on upside, not a lot. And again, I think that really kind of sets us up for a little bit bigger correction sometime this summer. Is that an absolute guarantee? Absolutely not. But we've gone a very long time without a 5% correction. So very likely sometime this summer, we're going to see a peak in economic growth, kind of uh, start to see earnings be revised down because of what's happening with inflationary pressures, et cetera. Whatever it is, something will cause a repricing of the market later this summer. So expect a 5% correction. That's likely going to be a better opportunity to put capital to work than right now. So anyway, get by the website. We keep you updated on all that. Realinvestmentadvice.com. That is realinvestmentadvice.com. Uh, but have a great day. We'll be back tomorrow. Get by the website. We have a report out this morning on why raising corporate taxes doesn't change economic outcomes. Surprise. Same thing we talked about when President Trump was cutting taxes. Didn't change the economic outcome. We'll tell you why. It's all in the report this morning on the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Have a great day. We'll see you tomorrow. Money, money, get away.
daily investment news you can use delivered at the speed of the internet sign up for the real investment report now at realinvestmentadvice.com it's a rich man's world